people perceive that they have more control. And that's why people fixate on technique. That's why the, the if you look at videos on Instagram, people don't watch mental videos. They watch swing fix videos. Swing fix videos don't help players. Okay. It, it's golf porn. This is The Tournament Code. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today, Brett. We know a little bit about your work on the mental side, so just tell us about your path to working as a performance coach. Yeah, so, you know, I was a baseball player in college. I played at LSU. was on a couple national title teams. Mental side was extremely important to our coach. I didn't really embrace it or understand it, though, for a couple of years, I think. You know, the mental side is one of those things where people have to, you have to kind of be ready for it. You have to, you know, the the best way to look at the mental side of the game is it's the sharpening of the sword a little bit. It's the tip of the spear that we're trying to sharpen. And there is a thread of the mental game that in that's throughout everything, but you can't, it's really hard to have a mental game that performs at a high level if the physical and the, the fundamentals are not there. And so I felt like for a long time in my career, I was trying to get the fundamentals right. And I would have a little bit of success and then I would sabotage myself or I would struggle. And then I had some injuries. And it wasn't until I kind of switched to the mental side that I started understanding what it meant. And when I came back from an injury, I wasn't the same. I didn't have the same physical skill set that I had before. But I found an advantage on the mental side that matched. And I was able to compete with what I had. A little bit of smoke and mirrors, but it still worked. And it just kind of led me and it just, it, it kind of got me thinking about the mental side and it, and it challenged me to, to, to look at the mental side and, and get my PhD in clinical psych. I switched my major late. I was a fourth year player, decided I was going to be a fifth year player. I changed my major very late into psychology. And then, it, you know, I went, I went down that path of what it took to become a psychologist. And it was a five-year graduate program, a sixth year on a residency, and then about a year after that, working on some dissertation stuff. And so it was a good seven-year investment, but I worked in the pharmaceutical industry for eight years after I finished training. But during that time, I was kind of working and moonlighting, working with athletes in particularly golf because I'm an avid golfer. And it was just one of those things I kind of looked at pitching from a golf from a pitching perspective and kind of built a portfolio for players to help them perform. And, and, um, uh, I've been very fortunate to do what I do and have the success I have, particularly with them on the PGA Tour and such. So that's kind of how I ended up where I'm at. What do you think makes it such that players trust you and want and want to talk to you? And what? How do you initially get your foothold in working with athletes, especially golfers, considering that you're an avid golfer, but maybe you weren't playing competitive tournaments or didn't have that background from college. Yes, yeah, so I'm not a I'm not a competitive golfer. I'm a low handicap I'll range between scratch one and then five during the winter probably. You know, I I I think what helped me was I grew up playing the game. Instead of playing golf growing up, I played baseball. But I took an approach of a pitcher and applied it to golf. The thing you have to understand in the mental game is not everybody's ready for the information at that time. A lot of times what happens is people come to see you because there's a rub, there's a problem, but the solution may not be what they want to deal with. You know, and, and that happens a lot. So what I try to do is I try to bring accountability to players, but players have to take the ownership. 
Um, I can give them the information. Usually my first session is about debunking some of the mental myths that they think they have and then try to build some trust and get them to have some success. And then we can start putting in some platforms. But it even happens on my tour players. They'll call me and be like, yo, yeah, I'm not doing, you know, when they first came, they were journaling and planning their days and executing. Six weeks later, they're not doing any of it. And I expect that. That I'm not like, oh, okay. It's, it's what happens in the game. Okay. People, you know, you go to the doctor when you don't feel well. You don't go to the doctor when you're feeling great, everything is great, and be like, how do I take the next step? People say that all the time, but they don't really want to do that. They come to you because there's a problem. Once the pain of that problem tends to resolve in the mental game, people tend to move on to other things and move into other frontiers. And so that's the challenge of working with elite players is that they have so many things bombarding them that you have to kind of wait for their spotlight to come back around and give them the the habits. You know, we can... We can watch 100 videos all day long on Kobe Bryant and talk about the decision tree that he had and all that. These are elite, elite, elite competitors. They're the best of the best of the best. We can take a look at what it takes to be Warren Buffett in his, his investment strategies. We can take a look at what it takes to be you know, Richard Branson in making big business deals or Sarah Blakely with Spanx. The reality is that that's not the norm. And there's circumstances that help those, but we can look at secrets that and habits that transcend people that lead to success. And what I try to do is get players to understand that those secrets are there, those habits are there, and there's some very little things that they can do to improve, but it may not contribute to immediate success. You know, as you mentioned there, you work with other sports, baseball players, football players, business leaders. How is golf different from working with those types of people? And how is it similar? Well, golfers are the game of golf is the ultimate, it is what we call an, um, it, ha- it has a site, it has a structure to it, like gambling. Okay. Where you're pulling on the slot machines. Some days it goes well, some days it doesn't. And we, we tend to, it's what's called an intermittent schedule of reinforcement in psychology. Okay. Golf has one of the few, the, the least amount of control that we actually have over playing well or por- playing poorly. People perceive that they have more control. And that's why people fixate on technique. That's why the, the if you look at videos on Instagram, people don't watch mental videos. They watch swing fix videos. Swing fix videos don't help players. Okay. It, it's golf porn is what it is. And I'm not knocking my swing coach buddies. Okay. The reality is people look at it like, God, I wish I could swing it like Adam Scott. Well, you can't. Okay. You just can't. Okay. You're not going to. But you can learn to play with the swing that you have. Golf, because 10 to 15% of our days are magical. We hold on to those 10 to 15 days of magic as if that's the standard, and it's not the standard. In other sports, and that's why baseball may be the closest to golf in that we say it's a game of failure. It is, but it's managing the dips a little bit more. You know, in football, you can have a bad day. Team still wins, and we're okay. And you can get better and improve and go against a different opponent next week that doesn't push you as hard and you feel better about yourself. Golf, the opponent's a golf course, and that golf course wants to beat the living hell out of you every single day. The days it goes well, there are things out of your control that go your way. And all of a sudden, you get in a spot where you're feeling pretty good, and boom, it happens. But we're talking about five to 10 excellent shots during that course of that round. And sometimes a bad day, it's three to five that just knock us off our rail. So what makes golf hard, and it's why people who come to golf from other sports come to golf from other careers, they can't master it. The game is unmasterable. The game is, and people say, well, Tiger Woods did. Well, 
Tiger Woods is the greatest outlier in the history of golf. Okay. There's nobody that has ever compared to him. Don't give me the other analogies of all the other players. He changed the game and the fitness level and the athletic ability of a sport. He was still relevant up until the time of his injury. Okay. His accident. He still moves the needle, but you don't want to live the sacrifices that he's made in his life to do it. Okay. He had there. there let's just be honest. I mean, a lot of people say, I want to, you know, have a happy life and all the other stuff. Sometimes the best make sacrifices that causes collateral damage across a lot of levels. You look at that in business. There are, you know, lawyers that work 120 hour weeks and they have a disaster of a home life. Okay. People create balances. What we have to do is realize that the game of golf, unlike other sports, has the most variability out of our control. The problem with golf is that we go to the driving range sometimes for fun. We go because it's enjoyable. We love it. So there used to be batting cages throughout the country. There are shooting zones to go, you know, hit, you know, basketball courts and stuff like that. But we're not trying to mimic what it feels like to be an NBA player. We're not going to the batting cage trying to mimic what it's like to be, you know, Fernando Tatis Jr. or whatever. We do that in golf. Okay, we go out there and think, I mean, I could, you know, I had a good day today and I can, you know, I can, I can do this. And then the next day, the game just something feels off. Something doesn't feel right. Timing gets off, and you go from feeling like the greatest player in the world to being an absolute nimrod idiot, can't do anything. It's interesting that you bring up the driving range because I think every golfer that's listening to this can relate to what you just said. But at the same time, you know, preparation is extremely important for tournament golf. So how do you balance, you know, getting prepared, getting your mind right without over-preparing or just going to the range to feel like you're doing something? Well, what are you preparing for? Okay, you're, you're not preparing for competition. You're not because you can't mimic competition stress. Okay. And that's the, that's the difficulty. And I'm not, listen, I'm not trying to equate golf to soldiers going to war or astronauts going to space, but how do I train an astronaut to go to space if they've never been in space? They're not going to really know what the physical demands are on the body until they're in a capsule they can't get out of. Okay. In golf, you know, a buddy of mine who was a Navy SEAL told me, he's like, look, you know, you go to combat and your mind goes a million miles and you know, those bullets are real. And he said, you start making decisions that you hope are going to be based on your training of your tools, your tools. Okay. See, in golf, what we do is we try to train, train confidence. Oh, I feel good. And I can go out and play. The minute you cross that line and go to that first tee, that confidence is fragile. Because the chaos of competition and the demands that are being placed upon you, you have now relinquished control at that point and consequences are high. When we don't have control, we try to grab onto anything we can. And that's why we grab onto technique. And what happens is players, you don't see Steph Curry standing on the sidelines after going 0 for 3, going, you know, practicing a shot. You know, but in golf, you see guys over to the side and they're trying to get in the right position. And yet the demands of competition, the chaos and the pressure that's there is forcing them to move different, feel different, transitions different, everything. And you say, well, I practice this. Yeah, but you practice it in a high control, low consequence environment where you just rake another ball over and you hit it and you feel good about yourself. I'd rather you train tools. Like, look, I know I have a fairway finder to hit one when I need to get it all out of play, you know, in play off the tee. Okay, I'm going to move the ball a little closer. I'm going to hit a cut, blah, blah, blah. I know I'm going to, you know, I've got a stock shot that I know I can hit every single time. 
I've got a swing feel that I know feels comfortable versus this, you know, swing feel of the day that I found after 120 balls on the range that now makes me feel confident. Like that's not, that's just hope. Now the problem is a lot of really, really good golfers are so talented that they can overcome that by playing pretty good 10 to 15, 20% of the time. You know, a tour player wins 80% of their income in five events a year. What we want to do is make the other 80% of the events that they make money I want them to make a lot more money. So that way they're much higher on the FedEx Cup playoffs. Very interesting. As far as golfers grasping on to technique and things of that nature, you said, I want them to focus on their tools instead. What does it look like to cultivate those tools in a daily and both at, the, at a high level view and at a very close level view? So how many of us practice hitting big wild cuts and draws on the range. We don't. People practice zeroing it out, trying to hit the straightest shot possible. Why? Because we can measure it. So, you know, the like we don't practice out of rough, out of side hill lies to a tight right front pin. Okay. And when, what happens is we, we practice technique so much because it's the only thing we know. There's got to be a lot of variability and process-based approach in the way we practice. Like, I think it's awesome to hit big cuts, big draws, and then try to hit one straight. Mix it up. Play, you know, hit a low, hit a low one, hit a high one, hit a medium one. Mix it up in performance. And listen, if you if you lack the technical technical proficiency, okay, and you're a 12 handicap, okay, we need to work on technique. That's not what we're talking about here. But even if somebody who's a 12 handicap needs to learn how to play in, on the golf course and not ban it. But when we're trying to be so like if, if the junior players today hit the ball better on the range than I've ever seen, but I can show that same video in baseball with kids taking two crow hops and throwing in the backstop and it says hundred miles an hour. And that doesn't mean anything because if they can't throw it to their spot, it's going to get crushed or they're going to walk hitters. Guys look great on the range hitting these drivers, but then as soon as they have to take it up, hit a little off speed to cut it off of a bunker, they double cross it in the trees, and then the next thing you know, they call their swing coach and don't understand what happened. There was a player we had years ago in a camp, and I was at, and we had a tour player in the group with us, and he was an older player. And the player gets up there, and he has like 135 to this front pin, very sloped down into the water. And he asks the player, he goes, what do you want to hit? And the kid goes, well, I hit my wedge 130. And coach was like, well, if you hit that wedge, you're going to spin it and it's going to go in the water. Yeah. He goes, I, I, I know. He goes, okay, I want you to hit your nine iron, hit a nine kid hits a nine iron to the back of the green. So now he's on a way down slope and he looked at him and he goes, well, that didn't work. And the coach goes, you took a full nine iron. He goes, you don't know how to hit like a flighted nine. Well, this was a high school player, like a, like a really good player. He goes, my coach has never taught me that. See, the old game was developed where we'd go out there and trial and error and experiment. And we'd hit different shots and we'd play like I, I was at the I was at walking at the open in a practice round, and one of my guys was doing a practice round with Scotty. And I watched Scotty hit a back foot fade five iron out of the rough to about 10 feet into the wind. Okay. Just mind blowing. I mean, even Teddy, his caddy looks at us is like, it's just stupid. Isn't it? And we're like, yeah, that's stupid. That's just. That's just stupid. Okay. But what happens with players is that because we've got this idea that everything has to be perfect, it has to like parents and players like get the job done. Like the worst thing I hear is 
play great, scored terrible. No, you didn't. No, no you didn't. Oh, so you hit it good. So that makes you think tomorrow's going to be good. Oh, uh, okay. But you still scored terribly. Yeah, see, that doesn't – the game is scoring. Like, I never came in after a bad outing in baseball and said, man, I felt like I had velocity today. Man, that was awesome. We gave up eight runs in a second. Like, you know, play the game. And we don't teach that enough. And so what happens is – and I think some of it is the benefit because we can measure it. I mean, listen, TrackMan and Sam Putt Lab and Quintech and all the other stuff are brilliant, Right. We have all the medical technology in the world to assess players and patients, but we still have the worst medical outcomes rolling right now with obesity and management and all the other stuff, right? We can measure people's glucose on any given moment on their arm and we're still growing fat because the choices that we're making and what we're focusing on is still causing the problems. Not It's not the measurement. It's the feedback loop. And so what we have to do in golf is realize what it takes to score. When a player goes to compete, the job is, did you get the job done? And if you did, why? If you didn't, why not? So how do you evaluate a tournament round with a player based on, you know, scoring, playing the game? Okay. How many times were you in position to make birdie, which is what I call 20 to 25 feet inside 20 to 25 feet for birdie or better? How many times were you in position? That's the first question. And they're like four. Well, then you're not going to shoot five under. Okay. It's just not going to happen. All right. So that's the first question I ask. Number two is what were the things you did well today? What were the things you didn't do well? And what were the things you learned? Okay. And I don't care if you shot 87, it was the worst day of your life. There's probably some things you did very well. One of them may have been that you didn't quit. That's good. Okay. What were the things that you did well? And people say driver. Well, I don't know what driver means. It, you know, it may be, hey, look, I stood up on those holes when I watered down the left and I was able to hit a cut off of them. And I liked that feeling. Awesome. What did that go? I could not get synced in my swing today. Okay. That's important to know. Okay. How did we adapt to that? Or did we just keep hitting it? Did we just keep swinging? Because what happens is there's two levels here. There's capabilities and capacities. Capabilities is this is what you're, you're we lay out all our weapons and we measure them and say, these weapons are going to score for me today. Not really. You're not going to use everything in your armamentarium. You're not going to hit a high draw three wood and a low cut three wood in the same round. Just because you have 100%. And But the goal is we want to train that to beat the most weapons in the world, okay? We want to train every day. So people don't people don't hit seven irons out of bunkers for practice, and yet the greatest short game player of all time, Seve Ballesteros, did it. Why not? Well, because I like to hit my 60. Okay, that's fine. I get it. But if you can hit a seven iron, you can probably flush a 60. Like, be willing to trial and error. And it doesn't mean you're ever – I mean, don't hit a seven iron out of a greenside bunker, but you could if you needed to, right? Okay. So practice that, do all that. So we build But when we go into the, across the white line, one of the things you have to remember is there's a continuum of performance that are going to happen, okay? And that continuum of performance is going to be from left to right. Great sucks. And outside great is best. Best is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Stop trying to be your best every day. Stop trying to shoot your low round every single time you go out there. So what happens is, we have to know that there's variances that happen and there's small things that measure. We're not a unilateral golf product, okay? We're, we have a lot of different things that are happening. And during the course of the round, there's two or three momentum shifts that will happen that will dictate course changes and corrections. And unfortunately, sometimes we're on the good side and sometimes we're on the bad side, okay? 
Well, what, what I want people to understand is that when you cross over that white line and you put your thumb on the scanner and it says, all right, get ready to play today, you know, you may have 71% of your overall arm weapons. The question is, are you out there looking for the 29% that's missing or are you using the 71% that you have to beat people? Okay. When we measure against our best days, we're saying the only way we can score and win is winning with our best. And yes, listen, guys, I want you to call me and say I shot 61. That's great. My question is going to be, what are we going to do tomorrow? Okay. You got to get back to work. The game doesn't stop and say, congratulations. You have just shot your best. You have now received a golden ticket to Nirvana. You'll never struggle another day in your life. The game goes, the next ball has to be hit. That's exactly what you told uh, John Rahm when he won the U.S. Open, right? Exactly. And so you've got to get back to work because now John is a U.S. Open champ. Now he's a master's champ. Every time he goes out there, he's living up, not living up to those standards, but he's living up with that history. Right. And so when you're, you know, I had a conversation with one of my elite players this year. I said, buddy, I said, I'm going to be an a-hole to you. But when you were on your climb, man, you just took whatever you had every day. Now you're measuring against this, this, top 20 player in the world standard. Stop it. You're not that good. Okay. But what you were great at was taking your 71% and whipping the field with it. Okay. We're, this is not a talent contest. We are not out there going, okay, line up everybody. Hmm. Man, that player is six foot three, moves beautifully. I mean, smashes it. Every ball comes down like butterfly feet on the green. That's the guy who's going to win. No, you don't know that because you don't know who can't hit an off-speed wedge into the wind, okay? Who, you know, and that's the beauty of the game, right? Players on, young players and parents look at it and go, man, my player's got all the tools, all this. And then you look at kids that are making it on tour. It's like, yes, there are super studs that make it at times. Yes, there are, Ludwig Aberg is just stupid, good, okay? He's an outlier. But how does... How do other players make it? And you look at them and you're like, well, I mean, what do they do that's special? Okay. It's just the fact that they're in position a lot, that, you know, that they score and they know how to compete. They stay in it. They know how to separate. They're emotionally disciplined. They do those types of things. It doesn't mean they're not angry. It doesn't mean they don't get upset, but it's like, you know, come on. There are kids that, I mean, there are kids that can hit apexes on shots that just make your mind go blank when you watch but they can't make a cut on the pga tour to save their life how do you practice mentally staying in it or is there anything you can do besides just playing golf you can do the the meditation stuff you can do all that but you know it takes in and there are apps that you can do or there's things that you can wear that supposedly gets you whatever it takes amongst 30 years living in the mountains to be able to stay present and not have negative thoughts okay you're not going to do that what the best way to do it is to mentally present is to, to pivot, to flip the, what I call flipping the funnel, which is the ability to go from a negative funnel, which is a negative funnel is, so let me give you the four steps. The four steps of the funnel is awareness, strategy, execution, and results, okay? What happens is when we're out there playing, our mind is evaluating threat and opportunity constantly. It's just like you and I are talking, there's a window behind me. If somebody drove by, I would catch that, even though you and I are in a full conversation. Okay, it would catch my attention, but I can filter it. 
And if it's a non-threat thing, I can walk right by it. If it was an ice cream truck, it'd probably grab my attention. If it was a bunch of police cars, it would definitely grab my attention. Okay. But I could still have the conversation with you while we're all picturing that. Okay. So what happens is we're walking the fairway and all kinds of negative thoughts, fear popping up. You, you cannot control thought and do not get caught up in why did a negative thought pop in. A negative thought popped in because it just broke through the consciousness. It is a, a radar system that is evaluating the environment on a regular basis. It's evaluating internal and external environments. Okay. It's doing its job. It's like an alarm system that's constantly checking its windows. Okay. So what happens is a negative thought comes in, our discomfort is high, something, and our awareness is, oh man, this is miserable. I got to fix it. So now my strategy is how to fix it. I don't actually execute very well because I didn't visualize and then I have shit results. Okay. So my funnel gets like this. So my focus is really, really tight around the threat. So what I want people to do is to realize, to acknowledge it, be aware of it without judgment. Hey, I've got a negative thought right now. The fourth hole, like there's a hole at my course. I just hate. I hate the drive. I hate everything about it. Uh, and the natural tendency when my funnel gets negative is I want to go faster, right? I want to hurry up and hit it and get out of it. And then I'm like, that dog got to hit the ball in the crapper again. Like, what am I doing? You're better to slow it down, not to be slow, but like, hey, look, I hate this hole. Hate it. Terrible design. But there's not a comment box next to the T. They didn't ask my opinion. Okay, the obstacle course, the golf course says this hole is hard. And for some reason, visually, I don't like it. And it brings back every trauma I've ever had on that hole. Okay, so then I walk up and I'm like, what I need to do is I need to flip my funnel to wide to narrow. So in other words, I allow those thoughts to come and go without judgment. I'm not assigning any more emotion to them, any more energy to them. I'm like, yeah, I hate this hole. Okay, but I still have an, an objective here. Okay, so I'm going to get on the right side of the tee. I'm going to tee up. I'm going to take a couple practice swings. I'm going to slow down. In other words, I'm allowing the mechanism to clear a little bit. I'm not trying to force it out. Just being present is I'm going to sit in the crap for a minute. Like I'm in it. And people like, oh, slow play. Trust me. It just, you think it's taking forever. It takes no time. So I'm just being present with it. And then I'll take a couple practice swings. I'll step behind the ball. I'll just take a cleansing breath and be like, hey, look, embrace this. This is a challenge. This is not a validation. And this is literally the stuff I say to myself. And then I'll be like, I'm going to take it to that left bunker and I'm going to cut it. And if it goes straight, it's good. And if it cuts a little bit, it's going to be wonderful. But let's make a committed swing and let's compete, man. Let's go. And I step in and I do it. And you see what happens is the negative thoughts are there and my funnel gets to wide and narrow. So by the time I get over execution, I've got an inline, in-process-based approach. And that's caddies on the PGA Tour are excellent at knowing when a player is uncomfortable to flip their funnel. Okay. But we play oftentimes without those caddies and we have to sit there and, and I like verbalization of shots. I like calling shots because it forces us to visualize and get our funnel upright. That reminds me of a quote I saw that you had, and I don't want to misrepresent what you were saying, but I think it was more along the lines of um, stop trying to calm down when you're anxious or feeling pressure. Could you kind of go into that and what you mean by that? Well, if you watch a football game, right, you don't see a coach walking around telling everybody, calm down, calm down, just everybody calm down. Players there know how they exert their adrenaline. Okay, you want to let the pressure valve off a little bit. You're not going to be calm. You have a demand in front of you. Look, the, the biggest threat to the human mind is uncertainty. And when you're going to competition, you don't know how you're going to play. 
So the only way to resolve it is to evaluate the future and try to bridge the past. Future stuff, well, past, oh, God, I think I played good last time. Well, more than likely it's going to be like, man, man, I, I fell apart on eight last time I was out here. <laughs> well, there it is. That thought got in there. Okay, there it is. So what I'd rather do is like, let's compete. Like arouse was a wonderful thing. Okay. But when we see it as a negative, all of a sudden now it moves towards anxiety and protection and, and trying to limit our motor movements. I'd rather lock in from an adrenaline standpoint. And and I know people are going to say, well, sometimes I get too hyped. Let's not allow 5% five, 5 of our time to dictate our life. Most of the time when we have high adrenaline and we're coming down the stretch, people will say, man, I absolutely cured that over the green. Hmm, I wonder why. Because in adrenaline, you got a little bit more speed and you dimed it. Like you absolutely centered it. Wow. So you can hit it flush when you have adrenaline. See, it's funny, right? We can do those things. When we have high arousal, even a high anxiety, we can we can dime it. The thing is to accept what we feel, to not villainize it, to not criminalize it, to not say I can't compete with it, but instead to be in a perspective of, you know what? I can do this. And when you can understand that the adrenaline is there for everybody. Now, what happens is when we get anxious, we get stressed, we get hyped up, we think we're the only ones that's suffering from it. And we think we're the only ones that are competing with that level of angst. That's not true. Now, there are times that players say, man, I don't know what happened today, but I felt as calm as ever. Yeah, I don't know either. And there are times I put on a pair of jeans that just fit absolutely perfect. I don't get it. I don't understand it, but it's a good day. Right. Or sometimes, man, I order a cheeseburger at a restaurant and it is just money. It happens. It happens. What have you learned working with elite players? And is there anything that you notice as far as differences between them and some of the younger players that you work with who haven't made it to, who don't have any status on any tour? I think the, the best players are able to handle the chaos just a tad bit better and able to just move it forward a little bit better. Okay, we're talking a shot to half a shot around. All right. And yeah, there are people who you know have great years and they have great ball control. And you know, I would say if you want to get into specifics of golf, a PJ Tour player's wedges are significantly better than a kid who hits driver all day. A kid who hits driver all day is going to hit it 340 carry, but can't flight wedges. Okay. And the days that it's awesome, the days that it's so good, yeah, their wedges are good distance, but 85% of the time their wedges are crap. If you watch a tour player when they're rolling and they're good, their wedges, their distance control, even with their irons, is pretty spectacular. Okay. They, you know, they, one of my tour players says something that's brilliant. He's like, always chip into the wind when you can. Okay. He's like, it's so much easier to pitch and chip into the wind on a tournament round. So knowing where the wind is and knowing I can miss left chipping back into the wind, it's a lot easier to control than downwind. That's, I mean, but that, that, you know, there, there was an old video, there was an old documentary of watching Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, and John Smoltz sitting around having a conversation about pitching. And as an old pitching nerd, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world because they were sharing secrets that most people don't think of, right? The best have little hints like that, okay? And everyone else is out there. It's like, well, their technique, I mean, it, what, it's like if you watch tour players, the vast majority of the time they get the ball on the pitching green, you know, they get the ball in the green out of the bunker out of the rough as soon as possible. When I go to other events, the wedges are flying all the way to the holes. They're chipping all the way to the holes. They're requiring perfection in order to be great. 
the best are able to quiet things down and go to the highest percentage plays as most as possible. They're not afraid of a bogey. They're just going to eliminate the big numbers whenever they can. Hitting the ball on the hazard, that's different. But I'm talking about unforced errors around greens or you know into boxes and stuff like that. They don't pin hunt all the time either. What a lot of times you see is a ball cycling to a pin or they got away with it. It's their week. And then they also have clubs in their hand where they're like, I'm flying at pins. Like we're going because it's soft and I can do that. But remember, there's 130 guys, 140 guys in the field. We're seeing the top 20. That makes sense. As far as I know, we're getting pretty close to time here regarding practicing. So we've talked about, you know, working on our tools and our arsenal as far as when we get out on the course, we can be ready and be able to pull on those tools. Yep. What does practice time for, let's say I'm a college golfer, I want to practice at a high level so I can play at a high level. What does practice time look like as far as maybe allocation of time and also allocation? You want, of, the, you want the real answer or the appropriate answer? Hey, give me the truth, man. That's what we're here okay, for. The truth is if you're a college golfer and you're watching this and you're practicing during the time that coach has practice, okay, then you're not going to make it. Okay. When you have organized team practice, that is – so if, if we take basketball teams – Basketball players go in the gym in the morning and shoot. They go back in the gym at night and shoot. And then they have organized practice. There's a video of Nick Dunlap the other night, who's a client of mine, U.S. Amateur champ, hitting balls that I, it must have been 9 30, 10 o'clock at night on truck man out of his thing uh, out at the University of Alabama. Okay. You practice all the time. And so you do your work so you're ready for organized practice or whatever. So you have. You plan your practice, you write it down, you execute it, you work on your technical skills, you work on your performance games, you challenge yourself, go out and play on the course and try to hit different shots, um, try to hit periods of you know scoring, try to hit periods of, of you got to have failure in about 15% of your practice, okay, whether on the course or off the course. And so you plan it and you do it, but don't just assume that three hours a day is going to get it done. If you want to take the next step and play, You've got to find what your angle is to win. There are some guys that don't practice a lot and they do great. Okay. They do. And there are people who are born rich and there are people who build wealth. There's two different courses of action and it's not taken away from either. You just have to look at what your pattern is and what your platform is for success and find what that is to take. Brilliant. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to join us. One of the last question we ask every guest is essentially along the same lines. So if you could tell a junior golfer just one thing, what would that one thing be? Get ready for the disappointment. Don't become better at dealing with a failure. Uh, Coach Saban has a line, don't ever waste a failure. Okay, when you experience a failure, use it, evaluate it, develop wisdom because of it. Don't play and anchor into, you know, how great your great days are, okay? If you shoot the worst round of the day, sit around and have lunch with everybody afterwards. Like, don't go running out of there. Like, be a man, be a, be a leader, be a woman, stand up to it and be like, hey, look, I sucked today. But, man, you played great. I'm proud of you. Then get back to work. Days happen. Nobody's nobody's thinking that you suck because you had a bad day. Okay? So own it. Get better. But work every day to bypass people, to, to what I call robbing the bank. 
Everybody you're out there competing against is trying to steal money out of your pocket. Go steal all the money out of their pockets. Do whatever it takes. And, and don't be afraid of failure. Don't be afraid. It doesn't reflect poorly on you from a college coach perspective. They want to see how you handle it. They want to see how you take a bad day and turn it into a less bad day, a less bad day and turn it into a good day. Okay. That's I what like I want you. you to understand. I like your bank analogies because I think you also have another one about confidence and taking notice of good shots. Am I correct in that? Yeah. I remember. Yeah. I mean, you don't need confidence to play well. Confidence does help, but confidence comes from preparation and willingness to stand up to anything that's coming your way. So if you can build that, it's like, look, you can't break me. I'm, uh, it's One of my high-profile clients had a breakdown in a news conference after the memorial. Billy Horschel, the defending champ, had an emotional release. It was brilliant. Every kid should watch that. And you know what happened? The vast majority of players like came up and was like, dude, been there, man. Love you. Okay, you know what? If we all compete, we have those moments where we feel like I'm a total idiot. I don't know what happened today. It happens. It happens. Okay, you you don't earn the right for disappointment unless you're in the arena. Perfect. Well, we appreciate you taking the time. Where can people find you on social media? Where can they find your website if they want to work with you? Any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, you know, the, the main thing is go to brettmccabe.com. Um, the thing that it's cool though. Is every once a week at night around seven o'clock, I think like tonight we're doing it on Monday night. Uh, it's called Mental Game Live. Check out Mental Game Live. It's a uh, hour long show on YouTube on the Mental Game Live question and answer. People can submit questions all day long. We answer. We have amazing guests. Had Michael Phelps on a couple months ago. Davis Riley, uh, one right after the Zurich and and so forth. Right. So it's a great place to get your questions answered. It's a great place to learn about the Mental Game and amazing topics. They're all housed on my YouTube. So I'd prefer you to go there right now. Perfect. Be sure to check out Brett stuff. And then if you're listening to us on Apple podcasts or Spotify, please subscribe and leave us a rating. If you're on YouTube, please like and subscribe. This helps more people learn about us. More people learn how to play elite tournament golf. And if you're trying to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at the tournament code and on Twitter at slash X tournament code. As always, we appreciate you taking the time to join us and diving in deeper to what it takes to play elite tournament golf. Thank <laughs> you.